Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to Latitude's In Session Podcast. Today I have a guy on that's from the mountains of Idaho, and it's probably not who you think it is, but it's actually his son. Today I've got on Tyson Pottinger. Tyson, thanks for joining the show, man. Hey, Jake. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to have you on here. You know, I talk to your dad all the time on the phone, and to be honest with you, he's definitely one of my heroes. I look up to him a lot in the deer woods, and he's taught me a lot. I've learned so much from him through podcasts, and I know that you've probably done the same growing up around him. And I just think it'd be really cool to get you on here and pick your brain for the listeners and, you know, figure out some things that you've learned from your dad, but also figure out some things that you're changing and taking on on your own and kind of like taking his style and then integrating it with your own thoughts. And, you know, at the other end, you're coming up with your own strategy. So I think it'll be a really good show, man. Let's give the listeners an introduction of yourself, if you would. Uh, Yeah. Um, So I'm Tyson Pottinger. I am 19 years old. I'll be 20 in a couple of weeks. I grew up between Harrison, Idaho and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho my whole life with my dad, my mom, Dee, and my uh, older brother, Jess. I've been living in the woods my entire life when I was growing up. I'm always out doing outdoor stuff, whether it was just jumping in the backpack of my dad when I was one year old, two year old, just going with him uh, all the way up to you know, getting into the whitetail hunting and, and honestly getting into the bass fishing a lot with my brother was my two big things growing up. And then when I got into high school, uh, I got real big into, into football. My dad played football when he was, uh, when he was younger in high school and he played college ball too at Western Montana. And so I got big into the football, my, my high school years and knew that I had the ability. I was blessed with the ability to where I knew I could go play, um, and get, you know, and get a good college degree paid for. So that's where I'm at right now. I, I currently play at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana. So I'm not too far from home, about five and a half hours from home. I love it over here, but 
the biggest thing, I mean, we're on a hunting podcast is I don't get to do a lot of hunting anymore. I'm so, you know, college football at, at the division one level is truly year round. We only have a couple week breaks during the year and they're definitely not during hunting season. Obviously we're playing ball. So haven't got to do much hunting the last, you know, couple years of my life. So I love getting on and talking about it. I'm always watching now. I'm really big into watching all the videos on YouTube, watching my dad, you know, keeping up with everybody in the, in the whitetail woods, um, keeping up with podcasts. So I love doing this stuff and it's, it's fun for me to talk about it because it's really the only way I get to live through it for, you know, the last couple of years and the couple of years ahead of me. But then after college, you know, we'll get back into, into killing big things. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm sure that you will. And I'm sure that your dad's excited to get you back out in the woods and get to spend more time out there with you as well. And I know that he's your biggest fan with football. You know, he talks about it all the time and he gets me all oh, fired yeah. up. And that's awesome, man. So let's uh let's dive right into the first little topic that we have here. I'd like to get into you kind of mentioned it, how you got into bow hunting, you know, being in your dad's pack when you were one year old out in the mountains. And did you did you fall in love with it immediately or was it something that you watched your dad do over time and you just followed his steps, if you will? Yeah. So I would definitely say I fell in love with it pretty fast. The biggest thing for me was that when I was growing up from those, you know, that three to like 10 range, I was just always, you know, I love my dad. My dad's a great human. I just always wanted to be with him, you know? So, and he was always in the woods. So the way for me to be with my dad and the be hanging out with my dad is to be in the woods with him. And he was never, I, I feel like a lot of people might think that he pushed it, pushed it on me or pushed it on his sons. He never was. He was always whatever we wanted to do, but I was very volunteering to go with him everywhere he went, whether he was in the woods behind the house, just to dink around or whether we were driving two and a half hours to go look at bucks at four 30 in the morning. And I was doing that at a very young age, younger than most people would think you know i was waking up early with my dad when i was seven eight nine years old and scouting with him and filming for him um was honestly one of the biggest things is i got in the woods with my dad's a lot before i could actually start hunting because he needed a filmer and he didn't want to pay somebody he um he's very secluded he likes to do stuff on his own so as soon as I was old enough to be safe in a tree stand, I was filming for my dad because he trusted me more than he trusted most people. So um, that was kind of how it started in the whitetail woods was filming my dad before I was ever hunting. Um, and I fell in love with it filming. Honestly, I, I was lucky enough to when I was young, get to film and shoot a couple big deer. And when you watch the guy that you look up to the most that you idolize the most do really cool things in front of you and you get to film it, it's, there's, I mean, it's pretty addicting to make yourself want to go do it. And so as soon as I was legal to shoot a bow and, um, old enough to, then I got right into it and, you know, never looked back really. Yeah. That's the story really resonates with me. And I had a very similar upbringing with my grandpa and my dad and same thing. They never pushed it on me. And I feel like, you know, that helps that passion burn even stronger because you want to spend time with them. And, and then, you know, it just, for, for me, it made a burn a lot stronger. And I really appreciate that about the fact that they didn't overly push me into it. And it, they just, they ignited the passion and they just kept, you know, helping me with that passion as much as possible. So that's awesome, man. Let's get into, you know, growing up with your dad, you filmed him uh, quite a bit. You watched him kill some big deer, which I'm sure was 
was awesome experience for both of you. I'm sure you were both pumped up. It gets me all fired up thinking about it, but I'd like to get into, let's, let's talk about the top three things that you learned while growing up with your dad and hunting in the mountains. Oh yeah. You asked me this question and it's pretty hard to put it down to three things when you, I mean, I'm sure most listeners have could probably take 15 to 20 things away from my dad uh, that they could, you know, take in. But the biggest things I try to focus on when I was learning from him wasn't so much strategy stuff. And I would say the biggest things that honestly makes my dad so successful and in turn helped me be successful is hard work, honestly, was what he instilled in me, not just in white dawning and everything I do, learning how to grind, really. My dad and I, I learned through him, you know, you have to do more especially when you're hunting public land deer and very pressured deer and very smart deer that are getting, you know, attacked from every angle and by every predator known to man, you have to be able to work hard and do way more, go farther, put in more hours than most guys would ever do, let alone just to find them. And then you get to trying to, you know, kill them is a whole nother story, but yeah, hard work, not being, dumb with your work either. You know, there's the saying work smarter, not harder, but the biggest thing is working smarter and harder. You know, you got to be detailed in everything you do and not, you still have to work your butt off is the truth, but you do need to, we have to be detailed in everything we do is, is the second big thing that I feel like I've learned from him the most is whenever we're out scouting, shed hunting, checking cameras, you know, putting in scrapes, hunting, backtracking deer after the season, going over e-maps, all that stuff is you can't just do it with a blank mind. You have to be very locked in and detailed with everything you do. And when you're out there, you have to pay attention to everything with these big public land mountain bucks. You got to pay attention to the wind. You know, you got to pay attention to the terrain, the cover, everything around that's going on is another thing that I think I learned that more so when I got older, just because I was able to start doing it because I had that mind frame then where I could, you know, I could really be out there and lock in and and understand what was going on, not just, you know, boots on the ground. Hey, I walked 12 miles today and, you know, I'm busting my ass. It, well, it's not all about that. It, it is. That's a huge part of it. But the biggest thing is doing that with a clear mind and a focused mind on how you're going to use those details that you pick up to kill a big deer in the season or, or to find his shed or whatever. That's the second biggest thing. And then the last thing that I could really say is staying positive and being thankful. What we get to do out in, in our country, what I got to do growing up with my dad is one of the coolest things that God put on this great earth was a lot of the times when I, nowadays when I, you know, I'm, I don't get much time to hunt and I get to go home and hunt for maybe a day or two. I just, I'm so thankful for the country that I'm in and just for the land that I'm on. Cause a lot of people don't get to experience that stuff. And I think the coolest part about growing up in the mountains is you can't beat the mountains, but it is the coolest and prettiest country. And you're, I feel, you know, I come from a Christian family. I feel like that's where I'm close, closest to God. So that was honestly another thing. Cause that helps you when you're on a tough season or, you know, you have a bad break, go down and trust me, me and my dad have had more, more so than I could count me more so than my dad, uh, you know, cause I'm growing up learning, you know, I'd have things happen to me in the season and, 
you know, I get down on myself when I was young and, you know, I feel sorry for myself is the truth. And, and I think the biggest thing is my dad learned, taught me how to just, Hey, man, you got to stay positive. You got to be thankful for, Hey, at least you got to see that deer today. You know, not many people get to see a deer of that caliber, you know, stuff like that are a couple, couple stories that I can think of where I was really down on myself a couple of times with a couple deer that I think, you know, I was hard on myself. I think I made bad decisions or, you know, might've messed something up in a little detail. And my dad was just like, Hey man, just, you got to stay positive. Cause if you get way too down on yourself, it's hard to, it's hard to keep going. And I think a lot of guys do that. They get too down on themselves when they make mistakes. It's a, uh, it's a hard game we play with these big deer. I mean, yeah, obviously you make too many mistakes. You're not going to be successful. That's known, but you know, you got to stay positive throughout your season and just, and just keep working and keep that positive mental attitude when, when stuff doesn't always go right, because stuff's not always going to go right in life. And uh, I think that was a, honestly the biggest out of those three that I learned from my dad is just how positive he stays, even when stuff isn't, you know, perfect stuff doesn't go completely right for him. Yeah. And I've taken that from your dad as well. And I really love that biggest three things that you have aren't tactic based. And we're going to get into some tactics later on, but you know, everything that you mentioned right there is just, is so important, not only as a hunter, but just in life in general. And I can see how that's flowed into your football and your school. And, you know, you're going to, you're going to be a PT and you already have your, your business planned out and all these things that then encapsulates all of that. And I think that the foundations of that were really probably spending that time watching your dad show those, those core values. And so that's really cool to hear, man. And, you know, I've had very similar experiences like last year, for example, EHD hit Ohio really bad and I went out and I didn't have a target come the opener. And so instead of getting down on myself, I just stayed positive throughout the season. And I ended up spending 70 days in the woods. I didn't find a target until mid-January. And it took me about a week and a half to get on that deer. And then I got on him at 15 yards and he shed both antlers on me. And so, so most people would take that as a failure. But for me, it was it was such a success because hey, you know, at the end of the day, like the strategy did work, but beyond the strategy, I got to spend 70 days in the woods last year. I got to go out and scout and I got to have a good time. And I'm so thankful for that. And if, if we ever lose being thankful for being able to spend time outdoors and with our friends and family, then we might as well just give up on whatever that, whatever we're doing, because it doesn't matter. Might as well just hang the bow up at that point. Exactly. And that's one thing that I've definitely seen from your dad that is just it's carried on to me. I see that it's carried on to you. It's just, you know, he's his entire life of bow hunting. He's still probably even more thankful now and more positive now than he, than he was growing up. And he's just, it's just built. And I really appreciate that about him. I appreciate that about you a lot. You know, it's really cool to hear. It's cool to have a conversation with your dad. And then I get on the phone with you on this call and I'm like, man, I'm feel like I'm talking to Troy almost. So it's, yeah, I hear that a couple of times. No, I, I would say the thing about those things that I learned is without me being in the whitetail woods with my dad, I don't think I learned. I don't think those get instilled in me as much as, as they would if I wasn't. And not to say like my older brother doesn't have those same qualities because he's not in the woods with us as much. But um, sitting back on it now when I'm sitting here in Bozeman, Montana, wanting to, you know, I love football, but wanting to hunt, I really reflect on those things. And I'm really thankful that I got to spend all that time growing up in the woods, learning those really the core values of our family with him. So yeah, I'm very thankful. I, I, I reflect on it a lot. Yeah. Those three things I like to reflect on now that, 
I get to look back and know that I learned them in the whitetail woods with him. That's so awesome, man. So let's circle back around a little bit and we're going to jump back into tactics. I'd like to, I, like I said, I love the three examples that you gave us and I think that they mean so much and I take away a ton from that. I'd like to get into tactics a little bit in the mountains with you and let's just talk about some things. It doesn't have to be a top three, but just some things that you've picked up from your dad throughout the years, whether it was, you know, filming for him when you were a kid, whether it was shed hunting with him as a kid or scouting and how you've kind of taken his approach and then molded it into your own approach as you've gotten older. Yeah. So, I mean, if anybody's ever listened to anything that my dad's ever said, obviously scrapes are going to come up and that's huge. Uh, I learned, you know, learned through my young years, what, it, what the hell a scrape even was, what, how it works. You would think me being with my dad all the time, which I was, I would understand it right away. And the truth is, is maybe I thought I understood scrapes right away with my dad after he was teaching me about it, but it really took, it takes you a while to, to really get the fine details of how scraping works, how deer react to different scrapes, how they react to different attitudes of deer when they're in the scrape. And so the biggest thing for me was, with scrapes um, that my dad taught me we love putting cameras on video on scrapes. If you don't do it, you, you need to do it because once, once me and my dad really started doing that and I was, you know, very, we were both like, Hey, we got to get a, we got to get a video camera on that scrape. We have to, like, it just tells you so much more of how different deer react. I can go back to multitudes of deer that me and my dad have killed off of scrapes because we know how they act and we know how, at what certain times a year they're going to be doing on those scrapes, um, whether it's those different does coming into heat or whether you're introducing a new buck into their scrape with the synthetic sense and stuff, different deer re react different ways. Um, every deer has their own personality, which is something you have to learn with scrapes. And every, every deer really, when you start studying, you know, there's a lot of similarities, but they do different things around scrapes, which is a thing that I learned through my dad that was that was very, very pivotal. Killed a couple bucks on scrapes that are just hammerheads that are like, if you introduce another deer in there, then they've got to be in there all the time checking it. And, you know, other bucks that maybe don't like all that presence in them. That was one thing that I learned. And then biggest thing about the mountains and tactics, strategies like that, that that my dad instilled in me and has, it's been successful for both of us is it's all about the wind and it's all about terrain. If a buck does not have the wind that he wants and he thinks is comfortable, you might as well not be there because these mountain bucks are so smart. They are so pressured. They get hunted by lions, wolves, coyotes, bears every day. The hunter is not the number one on the totem pole, trust me, in their mind. For them just to survive every day, they use the wind, these big deer do, 100% of the time. You know, maybe in the rut, they, every now and then, you know, you'll get a, you'll get a big buck that's in the rut that is dumb for a couple days or so. But other than that, man, they're always using the wind. And that's, that's huge in the mountains. And that's the biggest part of scrapes in the wind, really, is what I learned from my dad. And being able to use the wind to your advantage, but not just set up your stand where, oh, the wind's blowing in my face all day. I'm good. You know, he's going to come from out in front of me. That that stuff doesn't work in the mountains. A big deer won't come in from where you think he's going to come in or he'll come behind you. You'll never see him and he'll smell you and he might never blow, but you're not going to see him. So using the wind 
using wind edges, using terrain features that will steer a deer through a different spot that where you can use the wind, you know, a big open spot or where that, where a big buck doesn't want to walk across. And we've seen that multitude of times where we'll use a, we'll use an opening to our advantage with the wind where we know a big mature deer is not going to cross that opening. They're too smart. Even if it's in the middle of nowhere in the, in the mountains, they won't do it. And I've seen it happen and the small bucks and the little does might do it, but that big deer won't do it. And we've killed a couple like that recently um, that I can remember. I, I know I've, I've killed one of my best bucks using a, using a strategy like that, where we're using the wind, where we know he's not going to go through that area because he's not going to feel comfortable, but he's going to skirt it and use a, an edge wind where we can kill him, but it's still good for him. And it's good enough for us where we can, you know, where we, if we're doing our job and we do the entry and exit, right, we can, we can get it done. So the wind is huge. Scrapes are huge. And then terrain, um, when we're shed hunting is the biggest thing cover is what we're always paying attention to. You know, biggest thing is where a buck needs to feel safe is, is what I would say. These big mountain deer are very sketchy. We call them crackheads all the time because that's how they act on video. When you see them in person, they're just always, it seems like they're just always, you know, scared for their life. They're always on point. Um, so if, if you're in an area that doesn't have the right cover and the right terrain features, big deer won't be in it. 100%. And I've got a couple questions there. I'm going to stop you real quick because I'm getting a big list of questions. So the first one I have is you, you brought up introducing a new buck into a scrape. So I'd like to get into that a little bit. I'd like to, that's something that I really haven't done much of, and I don't know how to look at a situation and dissect it and determine that that's what's necessary. So if you don't mind, I know that you have a lot of experience doing this. Do you mind running me through like your thought process into when the, when you believe you need to introduce a new, a new buck into a scrape? Because like I'll, I'll set up a scrape and I'll even use like buck fever, the stuff I get from your dad and it works really good. And like, I've had really good success with that, but say that I have a scrape that does start to die off. Like, I don't know, is that, is that the time to do that? So I just want to get your thought process on that. Yeah. The biggest thing where I would say introducing a new buck is where we like to do it the most is when you find one of those gold mine, big scrapes, community scrapes that they're existing. If it's already there, you know what I mean? And you come up on it and you're like, holy crap, you know, we just found a, a, a big community scrape, not a, not a little rut frenzy scrape, but one that all the deer use, you know that that's being monitored by a big deer sometime in the year. And even putting out a camera and, and when you want to introduce, what I would say is when you find a new scrape like that, a new big community, put that, you know, buck fever synthetics or whatever, um, if, if you're using something else, put that scent in there and and what that does is introduces a new deer to that scrape to those other deer and you'll see it you'll see big bucks like they'll come up to it and you know it's it's their scrape and they'll come up to it and smell it and you'll you'll see them act like like they're shocked you know what i mean they're like who the hell is this if a scrape's dying out like you said maybe you need to try a different scent to it by a different company that that will smell like a different deer but I would say the biggest thing when I'm saying introducing a new buck to a scrape is when you're finding those big community scrapes or overmarking, you know, an old one that you've been running for a while that you haven't overmarked in a long time and a new buck comes into that area, you know, a new up and comer that has grown up around it. 
when he starts getting to that age where he wants to be the man, you know, you, you introduce a new buck into his scrape and he's going to want to check it. He's going to want it. He's, he's hunting you. That's, that's the biggest thing is you're making that buck try to find you. He's trying to find that new buck. So yeah, biggest thing is finding those big community scrapes, whether you're scouting or in season scouting, if that's a thing that you're doing, introducing those new scents using synthetic uh, sense is huge and you'll watch big deer act completely different on a scrape that they might have just been you know hey i'm gonna go check it you know every one or two weeks you know and see what the does are doing and all that stuff but you put a new buck in his face and i guarantee you he'll be back there way more frequently checking in to try to find that new buck when you're over marking a scrape what's your process as far as doing that and i'm talking about a, like you're at your house, right? And you're like, okay, I know that today I need to go out and I need to overmark that scrape. What does that look like for you? Like, are you paying attention to your boot scent? Are you wearing gloves? Are you like, what's your process? 100%. If a big deer smells human scent in a scrape, it don't matter what he thinks. If he smells a human in there, he ain't going to like it. Overmarking a scrape. Yeah. You're redigging the dirt out. Usually we're just finding a big you know, a big broken off stick that's sturdy that, you know, we're not going to put boot scent in the ground. You're not scraping it out with the bottom of your boot, uh, scraping it out with just a natural stick, uh, wearing gloves, uh, latex gloves. If you've got them are, are the best, that's the best way to go. If you want to be completely scent free and safe, wear latex gloves on everything, spray your boots down with scent killer, uh, with vanishing hunter, spray them down, spray your body down. Even if you're not hunting, Spray yourself down. You don't want human scent, especially when you're getting that close into what is essentially a whitetail, you know, telephone box. So make sure your scent control is great. Don't use your boot, especially if it's closer to season, you know, maybe in the summer, if it's July or June and you've got a scrape that you're building. Yeah. But we always use a big stick, natural stick, re-scrape it out make it look like a big buck came in there and tore it to crap and then overmarking the licking branches if it's a new one you found or you want to make it look better you know breaking more licking branches off hanging more hangers down to make it look like it's tattered and beat up more and then obviously applying the sense to it when you're overmarking a scrape that you want to go redo most of the time before season and then obviously what what we make sure we do is pretty much if we have a big deer in the area and we're hunting him and we're on him and you're hunting him, remark it all the time. Every time you're in there hunting, at least add a little scent to it, you know, just so he smells or sees that that is still that other deer that he's trying to find is still in that area. You know what I mean? I'm sitting here thinking in my head about how careless I probably am with some of my scrapes. You know, like you brought up the scrape and the scrape with the boot and I'm definitely the boot guy and I need to work on that for sure. That's something I can work on. And you know, a funny story about that. Well, it's funny now, but at the time it wasn't, but last year I went in and I had some buck fever with me and it was during the rut and my brother was down here and we found a really good travel corridor. And I was like, you know, what would be perfect here. Just a really good visual scrape because we can get the deer like oh, there's three different trails well maybe we'll get them to come down the trail that we want them to come down and so i ran over real quick like five minutes before we climbed up the tree and i scraped it out with my boot and i sprayed some scent in there and sure enough that night we had a buck come right down the pipe and that buck made it to 18 yards like facing right towards us so we don't have a shot and he puts his nose down and smells my boots and he wheeled around and took off faster than you can imagine 
And I was just like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So like, you know, I, I use, I utilize scripts a lot, but I think like not getting careless with it is something that you guys definitely take very seriously. And I think all that that's in the details. Yes. Like I said before, all in the details. Well, I mean, think about it. Think about how many, how many deer you've had and that we've had that they get on your boot track of where you're walking in at and they smell it and they bug out. It's, you know, if you're making a scrape with it, it's the same thing. You're just, you're honestly adding a little more scent there because you keep <laughs> scraping it out. So, so yeah, um, we're very definitely particular when you're building or overmarking scrapes with trying to avoid every way we possibly can to get human scent on them. Now, another thing I want to get into that you brought up already is you mentioned wind edges, and could could you explain that a little bit? I'm not quite sure of what you're what you're talking about as far as a wind edge. A wind edge is a wind where you're up in your stand and it works for you, but it also works for the deer. So that deer might have a wind that's not directly blowing straight in his face, or he he might have one that's cutting him diagonal. You know what I mean? And you're sitting just off the side of that. You're literally on the edge of his wind, but you know, like I said, a lot of times we use terrain features to kind of that kind of naturally steer deer, you know what I mean? Where, where they are naturally steered to walk. We'll get just off the side of those, just off the edge of those to where our wind is blowing into a terrain feature where we don't think a big deer wants to walk. And so we'll be cutting it close a lot of times. So you're, we call it a wind edge because you're really right on the edge of his wind getting busted. You know what I mean? A lot of times we're no farther than 10, 15 yards of him walking to get, to get our wind, but using those terrain features and just getting slightly off of his wind where he feels comfortable, where we know he, you know, based on betting information that we have based on what we see on trail cameras, where he likes to enter and exit a, an area and how he likes to use the wind where he enters, when he enters, then we'll just, we try to use that data to find out where we need to place a stand and barely off of his, just barely off of his edge. And like I said, in the mountains, it can be hard because to most guys, it's just a bunch of trees. You know what I mean? But there's little nuances. And and a lot of times I feel like in the Midwest, it could work even better because, you know, you could be in a funnel or, you know, have a, have a field edge to your side that probably a big deer isn't going to walk in the middle of the day or, you know out in a big field, something like that. Just, just something where, or it could be based off just trail cam footage where you're like, man, this guy is coming down this trail. 85% of the time he comes into this area. If I can just get off of it, but where he likes the wind, but I know where I'm in my stand, he's not going to bust me. That's, that's money. When you're going in to hunt some of these spots where you know that you have a buck in a bedding area, you know, like you guys have been overmarking a scrape. You have your wind edge that you're, you know, like you're checking your wind and how, how are you accessing into the spot and like what kind of things are going through your head as you're accessing into there? Biggest thing when you're entering and exiting is you have an idea of where that deer lives, where he's bedding. You've got to keep your wind out of there the whole time when you're entering or exiting. Make sure that your wind is never touching where that, where you think that deer is bedding. A lot of times it means you're walking farther or you're making a big loop or stuff like that. And then we hunt really high and it's for a reason. We get way up in a tree so that our scent cone is not super close to the ground. Our scent goes way out a lot of times 
because we have gear under us. So when we're entering an exit, I would say, make sure that your wind is not, we never, we always, we always feel like our wind is not blowing to where we think he's betting, if that makes sense. And you're just trying to slip in the backside most of the time, just trying to slip in using terrain features to enter an exit or huge using creek bottoms, using draws, or we use those all the time when we're entering and exiting, uh, just barely jumping up on a, on a ridge or in a saddle or so be it. Um, but just trying to keep our wind out of where you, we think he's laying up all day, you know, cause he's laying up there all day with the wind to where he likes it. You know what I mean? He's betting there for a reason. So if you push your, your human scent into that wind where you, where you think it's going to blow into him, you know, the hunts, you might as well not even go sit. Cause if he smells human around, man, especially these big mountain deer, they are, you just never see them. I can definitely imagine with how methodical you guys are with this whole setup. A lot of the areas that I'm going out and hunting, I might only get one or two shots of that deer just because maybe I'm not as methodical or maybe it sets up to the point where like I just at some point I'm walking across an area that he's going to be or that he can smell me eventually. So when you're that methodical and you guys are setting these areas up like this, and I'm sure that you're not even in that area unless you know that it can hunt like that. Do you see yourself being able to hunt that spot multiple times throughout the year as opposed to just like one and done sits? No, 100%. Um, we hunt a lot of stands multiple times because we put in the work to, when we put them in to make sure that they're bulletproof. For example, the, the deer that my dad killed this year, I think my dad had, oh shoot, probably, probably had eight to 10 sits in that stand that year. And I don't think he busted a deer all year. He saw three shooters in there. He, let two of them go and then ended up killing, killing that deer out of that stand. But that's because we bulletproof them. And if they're not bulletproofed and we don't, and they don't work, which happens, they get moved. We move on them. Not every time you set up the first time is perfect, but a lot of times what we find is little tiny, little moves will, will make the difference a lot of times. And they don't take much, but sometimes it does, we do require to, you know, make little moves after we're hunting it. If it's not bulletproof, then we will adjust if we have to, but yeah. I like that strategy a lot because you guys are like almost using a lot of these areas as like presets, right? Like you've got like this trap set for this deer and you overmark it and you know where he's bedded and you're introducing that new buck and you're saying, Hey, come to this scrape, but I want you to come to the scrape this way. Like on this route, I want you to use this terrain feature and you have to walk around this fallen tree and you're going to get in here and you can't smell me because this is the way that's comfortable for you to walk. You're going to get in there. And so like you guys have these setups and then if you need to, like if you absolutely need to, you'll make a micro adjustment where I feel like the big, like the hip thing right now is to be mobile, right? And and I kind of have fallen into this before too, where every sit I'm somewhere else, I'm in a different tree. Like even if I was in a spot where I saw a good deer, a lot of times I should probably just go sit down in that spot, right? But I find myself bouncing around a lot and then seeing the success that you guys are having on some of the most pressured and cagey deer in the country it just kind of brings me back down to earth of maybe I need to look at that from a different lens and have some of these areas that are just going to be like historical presets that I can fine tune throughout the years. The biggest thing about the mobile stuff out in our country is you get a mobile guy out here and go to the vastness of our country and our drainages and mountains and tell me how you're going to be mobile and, and not get spun out and not get spread out. Our country is just so big. The thing with these deer, like, like you guys in the Midwest, you know, you can, you can bounce around a farm, you know what I mean? Or bounce around a, a spot, 
an area where, you know, I think it's way more applicable out there. And I think if I was in the Midwest, I would definitely experiment with, with all that mobile stuff. But out here it's, it's so vast. It's so big. And these deer are so one or done. You get one chance with these big bucks out here. If they know they're being hunted or they know that there's a human in there, it's done. You know, the mobile thing out here is just very difficult. Just, just due to the vastness, I would say. And, and just, the smartness of our deer out here. And like you said, the caginess of them. Okay. I'm going to put you a little on the spot here a little bit. Your dad, in my opinion, is one of the best whitetail hunters in the country. Like I look up to him, like you can't imagine, like we talked about earlier and take a lot away from him. So I'm sure that you've done the same and you've learned a lot from him. I'd really like to hear where your strategy defers a little bit or like things that you've taken and molded into your own process basically taking what he does at a high level and said, Hey, I really like that. But my thought process is telling me I need to do something just a little bit different. Like you said, my dad is very successful and it's hard when you're growing up to, when you're growing up trying to defer from, you see all these big deer getting killed consistently. You see how well his tactics work. You see the mess ups, honestly, that both of us go through and you know, those things kind of get pushed out the window. So I think now at this point, the most difference between me and my dad is just the ground that we, that we go to cover. You know, my dad will pick a big drainage or pick an area and, you know, I'll be like, Hey, what about this? And, you know, maybe I want to go experiment over here. And, and I try to apply a lot of the same tactics because the truth is, is that they freaking work. There's little nuances that I would say I like I like to find when I'm out by myself uh, in the woods. The deer out here act, act very similar in, in a lot of the mountains. And you'll get into a situation, and I've done it before, where they, they're a little different. And, and I have had to do things that sometimes differ from the, from the things that my dad does. Um, I'm not afraid. to. I feel like I'm not afraid to go a little lower than my dad sometimes in elevation. Uh, <laughs> That would be one thing that I would say. My dad loves getting high. He loves hunting big hermit bucks. I kind of don't shy away all the time from getting a little lower to where I think there's more doe family groups um, to where a big deer might be a ladies man and like to live down there a little more often. I would say that's one big thing. Honestly, the biggest, and it's not that big of a thing, but is I don't mind getting a little lower than my dad sometimes in elevation, whether it's uh, scouting, uh, looking for sheds setting out sets, setting out scrapes. I'm not opposed to doing that. Sometimes my dad just likes to be high all the time because that's where his big hermits live, he always says. But uh, yeah, that's one thing that I would say. Um, and then just the country where I live at now in, in Montana is different. And so it's kind of forced me to, like I was talking to you about earlier, it's my dad doesn't have too much experience in in these mountains out here. And I don't get to do a lot of hunting, but I get I get to do quite a bit of scouting just for fun and shed hunting and stuff like that. And it's a lot different. So I would say out here where I live now is it's nice for me. It's refreshing for me because I get to just go out and do it completely on my own. Um, it's not drainages or areas of country that me and my dad have looked at for years and then finally dive into. But out here, it's like, you know, I don't find myself bouncing stuff off of my dad quite as much because I just get to go do it by myself. And the country out here is a little different and it sets up a little different than the country that I'm, that is back at home. So it's been fun for me to kind of 
to kind of see what the animals do out here. That would be one thing that is, is kind of different. I would say is just the country I'm in now. And I'm still learning, honestly, I'm, I'm learning out here. I'm still learning back home, but there's definitely a couple different things that I do for my dad, but most of them is STEM. Like you said, stemmed off of what I've learned, but maybe throwing in a couple new little nuances, whether I'm putting in a double scrape at this spot or putting in a big hub scrape, you know, a big scrape line at a spot uh, rather than just one big mock scraper. I've done that a couple of times too, but I would say a little difference in altitude, maybe every now and then for me and my dad, we don't, I wouldn't say we butt heads on many things when we're in the woods together. We're usually bouncing stuff off of each other and we end up agreeing with each other because we're very like-minded. That's perfect, man. And it makes all the sense in the world to me. And I think that I don't think we're ever going to stop learning and evolving with this whole process. You know, right up until the last hunt we have, I believe that we're going to be learning. And that's kind of what makes it, what keeps it fresh and fun. And I really liked how you brought up the Montana thing for you. And it's a new adventure, right? And it keeps it fresh. And that's something that I really experienced when I moved to Ohio was the same thing. I got to come down here and every time I'd go out and scout, it was new land. And like, I love scouting the same areas. Don't get me wrong, but man, there's something about going into a new spot and it's like, it's unknown. You have no idea what's in there. There could be the buck of your lifetime in there or, or nothing at all. Or in your case, there could be a grizzly inhabiting that. You know what I mean? So virgin ground is always very fun to dive into for sure. It really is. And, and then you'll obviously fine tune it over the years and you'll be really successful in those spots. So let's get into the next segment here. I want to jump away from tactics and this wasn't on the agenda, but we've been sitting here talking and it's really got me interested in hearing this story. And I'd, I'd like to dive into just your most memorable hunt from growing up. It could be your hunt. It could be a hunt that you were with your dad. It doesn't matter, but I just like to hear one of your stories on your hunts. You know, very lucky, very blessed to have a lot of success stories. Also have a lot of not successful stories that you learn from. And I think those are probably more important when you're a whitetail hunter is to learn from those ones, but a fun success story. I'll, I'll have to go with the my my biggest year to date and my dad will still to this day always tell everybody that that it's his favorite hunt of all time because I was I was 13 years old I was just really just really getting into it with my dad and and really working hard with my dad and and doing stuff with him where I can remember in that off season I'll just touch on this really quick I was really working hard with my dad I was doing stuff that I don't think a lot of people would believe a 13 year old would be doing whether that was packing heavy stuff in, hanging sets, hanging stands, hang like, you know, 13 year old up in a tree, hanging a tree stand might surprise some people. That was kind of the first year that I really was like, Hey dad, like I want to do this. Like every day that you're hunting, I'm hunting. I don't care what I'm doing. Like, I don't care if I'm tired. I don't care if I'm complaining. Like I want to be in the woods when you're in the woods. And he's like, all right, I killed some nice bucks before then. And kind of the first year too, where I got to the point where I was like, dad, I want to kill a four plus. I'm I've killed some nice bucks. I see all the big ones, obviously, that are on camera. And I understand why you let deer live for the deer herd to let them get big, let them get mature. And I was, that was kind of the first year that I wanted to kill a four-year-old plus. Did all the scouting that year. First day of late season, hunting a spot, big giant community scrape that me and my dad had found that summer scouting. And when we found it, both of us looked at each other and we're like, we're going to kill a big deer off this in the near future. It was just too dynamite of a terrain feature, too big of a scrape. Awesome. Set up a camera, started getting big deer. 
pretty much right away on. So we're in this area, November 10th, opening day. In our country, you know, the rut really doesn't get rolling until about November 18th, November 20th. It's a little later than most people. So November 10th, they're still real heavy scraping. But, you know, some some light rut activity for sure, but real heavy scraping. Big deer, we're always checking scrapes. Really, we find it all the time, November 10th through 15th out here. We love those five days. But anyway, this spot, there was a giant four point. Biggest four point me and my dad probably ever seen on camera. 160 class four point all day long, clean four. And so my dad was in there trying to kill that, which is pretty rare for my dad hunting eight point. <laughs> but we're in there trying to kill that deer for my dad. And we get up in the stand, and we check the card and I'm checking the card and I'm like, dad, there's a hammer in here. Like, look at this one. And he's like, yeah, that's, you know, it was a deer that we had known, but we were, he had moved a little bit. We had known him for two years prior to that. So that was the third year of knowledge of him. He was a five and a half year old, big five by five, typical frame with double split eye guards uh, when he was three and four. You know, we were keeping tabs on him. He was obviously a great up and comer. He was a big deer at four, probably 155 class deer, four years old. But he shows up and dad's like, hey, that's that's freaking Merkel. And I'm like, oh, it is. And he's like, son, if that deer comes in, he's all yours. I guess I look back at it and see how lucky I am um, and how blessed I am for my dad to, you know, let a 13 year old have the reins on a 160 inch class deer. And uh, he's like, man, he's all yours, son. Got in there early in the morning and checked the card and obviously saw that and super slow morning. I think we saw maybe one doe. And that was one of those mornings where we were up at 3.30, you know, an, a legit hour and a half walk in, a legit mile in to this stand. So we were tired, honestly. Me and my dad were both freaking tired sitting up in the stand. We're 30 feet up and it's about noon and we'd only see one deer. I'm like, you know, we're both of us are like doing the freaking doze off in the stand. We're like, Hey, we need to get down and just take a nap. So we're, so we're locked in. So we climbed down to the base of the tree and we were cold too. So we climbed down to the base of the tree. We take like a 30 minute nap. We wake up, crawl back up in the stand. As soon as we crawl back up in the stand, little buck comes by. We're like, all right, sweet. Night goes on. It's, it's late season. So I think it got dark. Oh shoot. I think it got dark about five o'clock our time back then, 5 p.m. We're out in Pacific time, so it's real early. About four o'clock rolls around, about an hour before dark, and I'm facing straight north. My dad is facing straight, um, straight east up at the scrape, and I'm facing straight north. And I look up, and here's just a big body, big gray body, and I'm like, "Dad, big deer." I don't know what it was, but like big deer. And he's probably a hundred yards away, and he's like, "Yeah," and picks his head up, and I'm like, "Dad, it's Merkel." It's Merkel. And he's, he's going to laugh at me. He's probably going to be mad at me that I tell this story because he always, he looks at me. I'm not kidding you. This is no, this is no BS. He goes, that ain't Merkel, Ty. And I'm like, what? I'm like, that's Merkel, dad. Like, you know, I'm obviously whispering, but I'm like, that's freaking Merkel. Like, that's a big deer. And he's at 80 yards. And he's like, no, that's a three-year-old. And I'm like, literally like laughing, like, no, that's Merkel. So I grabbed my bow, you know, I gave him the camera and I'm like, that's Merkel. I'm going to kill him. And he's like, all right, whatever. And, you know, I could tell he was almost like, please don't shoot a three and a half year old pie. And I'm like, no, it's Merkel. But he he comes in about 10 more yards. He's about 70 yards. And he just picks his nose up straight in the air. And he does, I know he does, doesn't wind us. Our wind is nowhere near him. Uh, it's actually in the complete opposite direction of him, but he's got a little, he's got a little crosswind 
from coming down the hill from the, he was up, he was, we were on a side hill really. And there was a big, big thick spot up, up above us. And he picks his nose up and that wind's coming from up above him. And he just picks his nose up, turns a 90 degree and just starts trotting up the hill. And we're like, what the hell? Like he didn't smell us, did he? And we're like, no. And he's like, wow, maybe he smelled, maybe he smelled another deer or something. Maybe he smelled a hot doe. It wasn't five minutes later. Doe come, we could hear some deer running around way up above us. Doe comes down right through the scrape off the hill, little buck right behind dogging the crap out of her, which was honestly pretty early. Like I said, for what we, what we usually see up in that country, they both come right through the scrape, little buck pees in the scrape. And they're, they come right below the stand and the does at like 30 yards and the little bucks literally under my feet, probably at five yards. And they stand there for about two minutes. And I hear one big, loud, deep grunt from about a hundred yards up the hill, right where, right where Merkel went. And I'm, and me and my dad kind of, you know, we get that look in our eye and I, you know, I'm like, he's coming. He's like, and he goes, kill him. So, you know, cause I was, when they went off for a second, I'm like, you sure want me to kill him? And he's like, oh yeah, he's yours. Go for it. And he's like, kill him. So I'm like, okay, I get my bow. Cause I knew it was him, that big grunt. And then he lets out just a giant snort wheeze. And it's dead calm in this canyon. And it was one of the coolest sounds ever. Just a giant snort wheeze. And then we can just hear him trot. Hear this thump, thump, thump coming down the hill. I'm like, yep, here he comes. Comes right in. Runs on camera. Runs right in between the little buck and the doe. And just stands there. And, you know, he's at a full sprint. So I can't, you know, I didn't even draw. I didn't use. I thought he was just going to run right by down the doe. And he stops at like 30 yards behind this giant pine tree probably stands there they all just stand still not doing anything just being careful literally all of them are just not doing anything for five minutes but checking the wind that little buck i'll always say killed me my biggest deer because that little buck after a while takes two steps and pins his ears back at at this 160 inch deer and he's a little forked one pins his ears back at him and i'm like no way. And, and Merkel spins on a dime at this deer and just pins him back and just starts strutting right up at him. Comes behind this big pine tree. I draw 12 yards. He was still walking. I didn't even want to stop him because it was so dead silent. If I would have stopped him, he would have jumped out of his skin. And 12 yards, just a light walk and let it go. And I just hammered him. Knew I smoked him super high angles you know i'm 30 feet up in a tree and he's at 12 yards so i'm you know i'm shooting down on this deer and so the entrance is high but i know it's good because the angle is so steep and he runs out there probably 50 yards and you could tell he didn't know it hit him i think he thought that buck poked him or gorged him or something and he stands there and me and my dad we always talk about this we'll never forget that sound man he stands out there and he's blowing lung blood out of his out of his nose you know, when you're a 13 year old, you know, that might get to some people. And, and it was like, I was like, holy cow, like you kind of realize what you had just done, you know, and I killed deer before for sure. But I'm sitting there and there's this, just this monarch of a buck to me in my eyes, you know, 160 inch deer is big deer, but he's out there and he's blowing lung blood. And it's just the loudest noise you can hear in this Canyon for about two minutes and then tips over and he's done. And, uh, we get down and I don't even remember, honestly, I just remember telling my dad, we like, when we got down out of the stand, I'm like, dad, this is the greatest day of my life. I remember saying those words to him. 
you know, he, we kind of got choked up together. Um, we usually do. And we kill one together because we know how much work goes into each into it. And, you know, we love doing it together. It's our passion. So yeah, we recovered him biggest deer. I think still to this day, either of us have ever biggest body. Uh, this deer was all of 260, 270 for a mountain deer. That's huge. You know, they're not out there eating corn and alfalfa their whole life. You know, I mean, he was just, he was just a giant body and he grew. He, he definitely had some ground growage. We got up to him and my dad's like, son, you just killed a 160 inch deer. And I'm like, yeah. And you thought he was a three and a half year old. So that's probably the best story that I can give you. And I know that my dad would probably tell you the same because, you know, that was a lot of hard work. Like I said, that off season that me and him put in. And I think my dad kind of let the reins go to me that year because of how much work I put in, not because of, not because he was hunting a, a much bigger deer, but I just think he realized how much it meant to me and how much I worked that year. So it was pretty cool, but yeah, I was able to get it done. I torched him at 12 yards and yeah, I would say that's the best one. Man, what an, what an awesome story. And that's just to be able to do that alongside your dad, especially a deer of that caliber is just so special, man. And what did it feel like walking up on that deer with your dad? Like I said, I had killed some deer before with my bow. So I knew how it felt to, you know, kill a deer with your bow. And it, it all hits you at once. You're like, especially the deer. And I'm not knocking any other deer that other people hunt. I never, I don't want to come across that way, but you work so hard and the mountains are tough on you. They are. Like I said, we were so freaking beat tired that day. We had to take a nap when we were going to fall asleep in the stand. So it kind of, you can't describe that feeling. Like I said, I don't think I've felt that same feeling ever in my life. Probably the other time I, you know, maybe a couple other deer I've killed or went in a giant football game, I would say, but I would say that that one was probably the most just shocked. I was, I was just speechless. I was so happy um, to do it with my dad, to get it all on film. It's just, it's, it's an emotion you can't really describe. It's a lot of love for your father. I can tell you that I was very proud too. you know, when you love, when you love your dad so much, it's, it was a very prideful moment for me to prove to him, you know, like, Hey, I, I can do this with you. Like I'm in it with you and I, I can kill him. I can, I can get it done when it, when it comes down to the nitty gritty part of it, you know, when you got to get it done on a big deer, I was, I was prideful for sure. Um, making my dad proud. I would say that just love and, and prideful. That's, that's so cool, man. You know, I've experienced that feeling that you're talking about a handful of times with hunting and it's definitely something that you chase after once you have it, you know, like that's the goal for me is to experience that again, whether it's a year or five years or 10 years, I'll work as hard as I need to just to feel that moment because there's nothing like it. It's like you said, there's it's like winning, like it. it's like winning a big football game, right? It's, it's the exact same thing. And, uh, packing that deer out had to make it that much more special too. I know that my last big one I killed in Ohio here, I had about a two mile pack out. And yeah, that was a slammer, by the way. Congrats. That that thing was a tank. Yeah. Thanks, man. And I'll tell you what, it was just so cool to like, it, it hurts the whole way out, right? Like the whole two miles is just miserable, but it's the best misery you ever feel in it your entire so life. Good. Yeah. Like there's, you would never want to do that pack unless it was for a big block. You know it, what I mean? It would, I think it would be hard for a lot of guys to get through it, but when you got, when you know what's on the back and how much work went into it, it's, it's probably honestly a lot easier than 
more most two mile hikes that you take with a lot of weight on your back. One hundred percent, man. Well, hey, we're at about the hour mark here, so I've got one more question for you, and then we'll wrap this thing up. I want to know your like, what are Tyson's goals for hunting in the next five to ten years? Like, what do you want to get out of hunting? Like we kind of talked about before we started recording, um, I got a couple of years left of football here. Obviously, that's you know that's another passion that I could do five million podcasts about, um, just like hunting. I want to have a great football career here, make my family proud, make my hometown proud playing football. But man, I'm telling you, as soon as I'm done with this, wherever football takes me, however long I'm playing, could be a year, could be 10 years, you never know. When I'm done with football, mountain whitetails better watch out because I am so in love with with hunting them. I love the grind and I can't wait to be out just with my dad again. You know, I don't get to see a lot. I don't get to see my parents a lot. I don't get to see my family a lot. So getting back out in the woods, honestly, is my biggest goal. I already know it's not a goal that I am worried about achieving because I already know that once I have the time, I'll be in the woods all the time. But, um, and another thing I, I want to do is I want to get back to killing them consistently, you know, last couple of years of my high school and then going into college, you know, you don't have much time. So I wasn't able to kill a couple of those years, which is frustrating for me. But like we talked about, it's part of the game. You got to stay positive. But when I get out of school and I start really getting back into it again, I want to kill another, you know, a legit five and a half year old, big mature deer, big one that makes me excited. Like, like that one I told the story about, um, for sure in the next five to 10 years. I think that you will definitely do that, man. And after talking to you today and talking to your dad, there's no doubt in my mind that you are going to kill a bunch of giant deer in your lifetime. And it's just a matter of getting (laughs) out in the woods. I sure hope so. I I guarantee it, man. There's no doubt in my mind. So Tyson, this has been a great show, man. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, Yeah, just um, Instagram uh, at, it's just Tyson.Pottinger. If you want to find me, if you follow my dad, just look at his posts. I'm I'm all over on his Instagram. But then Facebook is uh, Tyson R. Pottinger. Yeah, those are the two biggest things. Just Facebook and Instagram, whatever. DM me if you have any questions or want to talk about football or or whitetail hunting or bass fishing. Uh, those are kind of my three my three loves. So I'm always willing to talk to people. I love I love BSing about the woods and BSing about outdoors and football. So just Instagram, again, Tyson.Pottinger or Facebook, Tyson R. Pottinger. Awesome, man. Well, hey, thank you again for coming on the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So I really want to have you again on again eventually. And uh, and good luck this fall with football. And hopefully you get out in the woods a couple times, man. Yeah. Thanks, Jake. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you. Yep. We'll talk soon. Awesome. Thank you, buddy. All right, everybody, that is a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you could, please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and a written review. See you next time.